Our Father, we are thankful for your grace. It, um, it is something that is astonishing. And it is easy for us, after a while, to become familiar with it. After walking with Christ for years, but may we never cease to be astonished and amazed by it. It is the greatest news in the world that Christ came to die for us and to take our sins upon him. He was God. He took on human flesh, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, and he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our sin upon him, and he died in our place. And the wrath that should have come upon us, you poured out on Christ. The old hymn writer wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? It is staggering. It is amazing. But we, we, we can never forget it. We, we, at times, want to add something to grace because we feel unworthy. We want to add some kind of good work or we want to add this or that. But it's by sure grace and mercy. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that any man should boast. We thank you for that grace. We thank you for forgiveness of sins. We thank you that because of what Christ did, when we trust in him, as Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You save us from our sin by the death of Christ. We still sin. But Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hope that this sink in to our minds and hearts. Because we've all sinned today. We come to Christ, we confess our sin. First John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the greatest news in all the world. We are thankful that you sought us out because we certainly were not seeking you out. And you brought us to the truth and you redeemed us it's sheer grace, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So tonight, we're going to do a kind of summary of what we've been doing throughout the last 10 weeks. Our key word has been uh, 
anchor or anchoring. We, we started out in Deuteronomy 6, anchoring your family in Christ. In, in order to anchor your family in Christ, first you have to be anchored in Christ. It's, this, isn't, this isn't religion. It's not ritualism. It's not... Um, It's, it's not having a, uh, an, an infant baptized and then their sins are forgiven. That, that's not it. Uh, in Deuteronomy 6, Moses said, and this is where we begin, 10, 11 weeks ago, this is the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you might do them in the land which you were going over to possess so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. You've got three generations there. So, as men, it is our job. We know that that fathers are responsible for their children, but it's interesting that you've got, so that you and your son and your grandson, uh, that is the influence that is potentially there for those of us who are serious about following Christ. Uh, and it's a great thing. It's our job to teach those who come behind to fear the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fourteen times in Proverbs, it talks about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an awe of God and who he is. Tonight, by way of kind of summarizing where we've been over these last weeks, Uh, The topic I want to hit tonight is anchored in the mind of Christ. Anchored in the mind of Christ. And I want to give you two statements to begin. The first statement is this. The Bible is the mind of Christ. Some of you, your Bible's one of the features that came with your Bible, perhaps, is that the words of Christ are in red. If the Bible publisher were consistent, your whole Bible would be in red because it's all the word of Christ, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate. The idea there is completely furnished. Everything you need is in the Scripture. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to our life. That is the path that we are on when we come to know Christ, we're born again Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, when you get a birth, it's exciting, but what you've got when there's a birth is immaturity. The goal is to take that child from immaturity to maturity. It's not swift, it's not quick, it's not fast, it's slow. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, 
training in righteousness. That's what a father does in a home. That's what the father does with us. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We, we, we are working with our children and grandchildren to prepare them to become responsible adults. That's what God the Father is doing with us. He doesn't want us to be, he doesn't want us to be men who are following Christ and growing old. He wants us to be men who are following Christ and growing up. There is to be measurable maturity. The way we grow is by interacting with the Bible, which is the mind of Christ. So statement number one, the Bible is the mind of Christ. Statement number two, we must use our minds to know him, love him, and obey him. We must use our minds to know him, love him, and obey him. I don't know how many years ago, I would think 30 years ago, maybe 35, John Scott wrote a book, and the title of it, little paperback, Power Punched. The title of it was Your Mind Matters, and your mind does matter. Turn with me to Matthew 22, if you would. In Matthew 22, these are familiar words. In Matthew 22, uh, beginning with 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the two opposition groups, uh, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. Mind. Your mind matters. It's um, interesting over the years, I've traveled in a lot of conferences and a lot of churches. It's, it's interesting and it's sad and it's not right how many churches are um, spending less time on Scripture and more time on entertainment and on gimmicks and on programs and on this or that or that. Uh, in, in, in otherwise, in, in other words, it, you go to some some churches and you get the sense that the mind is not important. There's a lot of lot of worship. There's a lot of music. There's a lot of lyrics that are repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again. Have you ever been in a situation like that? It uh, yeah, it's mindless. It's mindless. But you see, if you're really going to know God, and if you're going to love God, you have to use your mind. Your mind matters. We, we don't put it in a secondary position. We put it right up front. Because you can't know God if you don't engage your mind. John 17, Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. To know, you got to think. you got to use your mind. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 2, 14. First Corinthians chapter 2, 14. But a, na- a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, for they are spiritually appraised. So, we are born, let's, let's stop for a minute. Let's do a little, uh, little theology. So, we are born physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. Little babies are cute, but they're little sinners. Little babies have sin natures. Obviously from your wife's side of the family. Uh, Actually, you're in there too. We're all in there. We pass on traits to our kids. Oh, she's got, you know, her grandmother's eyes. She's also got her grandmother's sin nature. Oh, he's got his, uh, he, he's got his uh, grandpa's hands. He's also got grandpa's sin nature. When you go back to Genesis and you go back to Adam, and by the way, Adam really lived and he was a historical figure, even in a weakened evangelical Christianity, which we have today. Uh, I've got several books published in recent years debating whether or not Adam really, really lived, if he was really a historical figure who walked the earth. Really? I mean, it just never ends. If, by the way, when you read Romans 5, if Adam wasn't a literal historical figure who walked the earth, there is no reason for Jesus to come and die for our sins. Because the reason sin came in in the first place was through Adam and his wife Eve. You see, he, he was a real historical figure. And, and you know the story. And if you can't remember the story, just pick up your iPhone and look at the Apple logo. Right? And what do you have there? You don't have just an apple. You have an apple with a bite taken out of it. Now, Genesis doesn't say it was an apple, but you get the point. You see, sin came into the world because instead of believing God and obeying God, Satan who never changes his M.O., Satan always cast aspersion. He always casts aspersion on God's word. God has said, we shall not eat of this. We shall die. You shall not die. He always calls God a liar. Now, don't forget, he's a murderer from the beginning, and he's the father of liars. The reason we have sin natures is that we were there with Adam and Eve in the garden. 
You say, I don't remember that. Well, yeah, you wouldn't remember it. But we were all there in the loins of Abraham. Similarly, we were in Abraham, in Adam. We were there. And when sin, death, came into the world, through, through, it's called the fall because all of creation was affected. Death entered in through sin, and uh, it hit all of us. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We were all infected with the virus with the virus which immediately put everyone terminal. Even those born with physical life are spiritually dead. It goes back to Genesis. So, this is why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, Nicodemus, he said, Nick, you must be born again. And Nick said, do I enter into my mother's room a second time? No, no. He's talking about a spiritual birth. We're born physically, but at a certain point, we hear the gospel, and we must be born again spiritually. We're spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before we come to know Christ, we read here, but a natural man does not accept the things of God. The natural man is the man who has not been born again, is the man who has not responded to the gospel. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Look at uh, 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul was an apostle. Things were revealed to him by Christ and, and the other writers of Scripture. Uh, by the way, since we're close to chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, go down to uh, verse 18, 3.18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Natural men think they are wise. Natural men think pretty much that they got it all figured out, but they don't know the living God. In order, so see, here's what has to happen. A natural man must be born again. But you see, you hear the gospel, and so often we think, well, that's foolish. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. We'll come back to that. Go with me to Psalm 1. We were there last week. Psalm 1 introduces... Uh, all of the 150 Psalms. How blessed is the man. And before I do this, so here's what happens. The natural man doesn't accept the things of God, but when someone is born again, when they hear the gospel, 
and you say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you died in my place. Come into my life. I want to know you. I want to follow you. It's important that we understand something. And a lot of evangelical Christians, we, this is something we don't understand. I've said this before in here. We think that anybody can come to Christ anytime they want. But you see, you can't because you're dead. How many times growing up in church did I hear the illustration that preaching the gospel is like throwing a life preserver to a drowning man? It's pretty gripping, especially if it's a, he's a good evangelist and he's given the sermon 900 times. He, he's, he's got it down, and he knows how to make that very gripping. The man's drowning. He's about taking his last breath. He's exhausted. He's about to go under, and suddenly someone throws a life preserver, and he reaches out and grasps it, and that's what Christ has done. He throws the... See, here's the problem with that. The guy in the water is dead. He's already dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1. Dead men don't reach out and grab life preservers. Well, how in the world does anyone come to Christ if you're spiritually dead? When you're spiritually dead, you can't come to Christ. You don't have the ability. You're dead. Um. Uh, Imagine a nice spring day, and you're going to go out to the country, and, you know, you got the top down, and your wife's with you, and you're just out for a drive, and you pass a little country church, and as little country churches do, there's a little cemetery next to it, and as you're just driving along, you see the little, you slow down, and you suddenly see a hand come up, come up out of the sod. <laughs> and you, you, you pull over, another hand comes up, a guy burrows through with his head, pulls himself up out of the grave, sees you parked there, says, hey, can I get a lift in the town? <laughs> now, that's ludicrous. Because dead men can't change their condition. We're in Psalm 1. Keep your finger there. Go to Ephesians 1. Actually, go to Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Watch this. Made us alive. He made us alive. Because you couldn't make yourself alive. What happens to us when we come to know Christ is what happened to Lazarus. That's a picture of what happens to someone when they are born again. In order to be born again, you have to be dead. Lazarus was born again, so to speak. He was dead. 
In fact, Jesus stayed away on purpose to make sure. In fact, he stayed away and the two sisters were upset. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Well, earlier in the context, it says he stayed away on purpose. Why did he do it? Because he was going to make a point. There was no, there was going to be no doubt that Lazarus was dead. There wasn't an autopsy, but there was going to be no question that Lazarus was dead. He stayed away long enough, and then he went to the tomb, and, 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 and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Oh, oh, and their concern was, well, he's been in the tomb. You know, he, there's going to be an odor. There's going to be a smell, precisely. So the guy is dead, and Jesus says, this is very important, Jesus says, Lazarus, he didn't address all the tombs, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And what did Lazarus do? Lazarus heard him and obeyed him. My question is this. How does a dead man hear? Oh, here's how it happens. Jesus made him alive before he called to him so that he could respond. That's what happens to us because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit before we confess Christ because if you weren't regenerated and made alive, you couldn't confess Christ because you're dead. That makes some of you guys uncomfortable. Just read your Bible. It's in there. Uh, it's a miracle. That's how you go from being a natural man to a spiritual man. He made us alive. Now, Psalm 1. Uh, it's going to contrast the wicked man and the righteous man. We're all wicked before we come to know Christ. But those who have come to know Christ, the righteousness of Christ is transferred in our account. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This doesn't mean that you don't have friends who are unbelievers, but it means that they are not the primary influence on your life. Because, you see, they don't know the Lord, therefore they don't have the mind of Christ, therefore they don't walk in wisdom. They can't even understand the things of God. A blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or of the Ivy League system or the secular educational system or what the government says or this or this or this because it's all secularized. You've got to function, but they are not the primary influence in your life. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Did you see that phrase back there? His delight's in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Eastern meditation is emptying your mind. Scriptural meditation is filling your mind with the Word of God. Romans 12, and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? That's important, renewing your mind. The more I'm in the scriptures, the more my mind is being renewed. Okay. You 
You see the importance of the mind? It's critical. Wouldn't it be great to be able to, uh, whatever you're facing in life right now, whatever's on your front burner, whatever you're dealing with, whatever is giving you difficulty in regard to sleep at night, wouldn't it be great if you could just sit down with the Lord Jesus Christ and tell him your situation and tell him your problem and then have him share with you his thoughts on the matter? Would that not be incredible? Well, it would be incredible if this thing would stay. Okay, that did. That's good, because I wasn't sure it was level. Wouldn't that be incredible? It would be incredible, and you've already got it. We have the mind of Christ. It is not an idle word for you, it is your life. Deuteronomy 32. Jesus said in Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is right here. The mind is critical. I, uh, I, I want to quote tonight from an article called Loving God with All Your Mind written by a guy named Jonathan Sarfati. And uh, I'm just going to read some. And then we're going to transition into a guy named William Tyndale. Because we've been doing some church history and we've been talking about the Reformation. And that's kind of where we're going. And you'll like this Tyndale guy. And we want to know about him so that we can emulate him because he lived in a time where the Word of God was not popular, and we're living in a time where the Word of God is not popular. So, uh, Jonathan Sarfati, loving God with all your mind. And remember, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your, all your mind. He writes this, logic and reason are far from being in, incompatible with biblical Christianity. Rather, they are essential. Without them, it is impossible to deduce, to deduce anything from the true propositions of the 66 books of Scripture, the Christian's final authority. All right, now I'm going to give you a paragraph here, and don't get lost. It's just a paragraph. All right? If you've got a five-hour energy, you might just want to swig it real quick. Might need a little caffeine boost here, okay? Logic is the science of the relations between propositions. Logic can tell us what can be inferred from a given proposition, but it cannot tell us whether the given proposition is true in the first place. All philosophical systems can rely on logical deductions from starting assumptions. Those starting assumptions, everybody assumes something are called axioms, A-X-I-O-M-S, which, by definition, cannot be proven from prior assumption. For our axioms, it is rational to accept the propositions revealed by the infallible God in his 66 books of the Bible. Martin Luther, and we talked about Luther a couple of weeks ago, 
who God used 500 years ago to bring about the Reformation. He was kind of the key guy that shook the whole world. Martin Luther can correctly distinguish between the magisterial and ministerial use of reason. All right? Reason, you use your minds. Okay. Once again, stay with me. You ever heard of magisterial reason? I really haven't, but here's what it is. It's pretty simple to understand. The magisterial use of reason occurs when reason stands over Scripture like a magistrate and judges it. Boy, that's familiar. You see that outside the church, and you see it inside the church. More and more in evangelical churches, there will be a passage of Scripture that is not appreciated, that is not liked. And so immediately, uh, someone writes an article about this, and they basically assign it, oh, that's just cultural. Oh, it's just cultural, we can throw it out. But a lot of times, it isn't cultural. In fact, it is applicable to our day and time because it's from creation, but honestly, they don't like it. And it's an issue of authority. When you stand over Scripture and act like a magistrate and judge it, uh, such reasoning is bound to be flawed because it starts with axioms invented by fallible human beings and not revealed by the infallible God. But this is the chief characteristic of liberal Christianity. It's refuted by scriptural passages such as Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. Um, a, a lot of Christianity does not believe in the authority of the Bible. you got all kinds of churches on Sunday. With, uh, some are Presbyterian, some are Baptist, some are uh, Methodist, some are this, some are that. And usually what you have in those churches, which have become mainline, they used to be orthodox, they used to be under the authority of Scripture, but you got, you got a pretty strong movement of those who are in those churches but really don't believe in the authority of Scripture. But then you got another group that does, and they split off from the guys that went liberal, and they're still holding on, you see. And you can look around Dallas, and you can see churches, and that's their history. Um, magisterial use of reason occurs when someone stands over Scripture and judges it. But the problem is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My ways, God says, are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. The problem is with the person who stands over Scripture and judges it is that they think they know it all. But God says his thoughts are higher. It makes sense. We're finite. He's infinite. Note that this does not say, Sarfati says, note that this does not say my logic is higher than your logic. If so, then if we believe 2 plus 2 is 4, God could believe 2 plus 2 is 5. What it does mean is that God knows every true proposition while we only know in part. God knows all things. So who are we to stand over what he has revealed? There's a lot of hubris there. Now here's the second kind that Luther referred to. The ministerial use of reason occurs when reason submits to Scripture. 
This means that all things necessary for our faith and life are either expressly set down in Scripture or may be deduced by good and necessary consequence from Scripture. Many scriptural passages show that Christians are not supposed to check in their brains at the church door, but to use their God-given minds in subjection to God's Word. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us feel together, says the Lord. That's not what it says. Come now, let us experience together, says the Lord. Now, you had churches that would say those things. What is Isaiah 1.18? Come now, let us reason. Use your mind. Let us use our minds together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Wool. The mind is important. Now, what's interesting, if you've been in Christian circles for a while, there are some groups, and they'll, they'll, make it, they'll talk about head knowledge versus heart knowledge. And it's true, you can have something in your head and not have it in your heart. That's not good. But I am thinking in terms of certain groups within Christianity that are very much experienced best uh, they, are, they are based on experience. They are churches that will say, this scripture in the scripture you should have. In fact, if you don't have it, you're a deficient Christian. And then I'll ask a question, don't you want everything that God has for you? Well, who would say no to that? But oftentimes, in order to seek a certain experience of speaking in tongues or having this experience, uh, you will hear a phrase, um, Scarfati says, the idea is rational thinking is branded as something coming from the flesh. People of the spirit won't try to understand what's happening. They will simply accept the blessing. The catchwords are unmistakable. Don't try to understand this. Don't try to analyze this. Don't try to figure this out with your mind. Well, why not? By the way, it is important that if someone says you should have this experience or you see some experience and, oh my gosh, that, we, we got a whole aspect of people, I think many who love Christ, who are wide open to deception. Because anything they see that looks supernatural or smacks of the supernatural, they accept without using their minds. And the scripture says, test the spirits to see if they be of God. The believers at Berea were more noble than those at Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. When there's an experience, you match it. You look at the Word of God and see what the Word of God says. And if it doesn't fit, you reject it because even, a, even Satan can appear as an angel of light. He can deceive looking like the real thing. So you got to use your mind. In such thinking, there is no real understanding that faith is always built on knowledge. Boy, that's important. Faith is always built on knowledge. Uh, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Hmm. I don't have to conjure up faith. Faith comes from me knowing the Word of God. 
Jesus repeatedly asked, have you not read? Have you not read? You'll see it in the Gospels. He tells the Sadducees they are in error because they do not know the Scriptures or the power of God, Matthew 22, 29. You've got to use your mind. In his letters, Paul constantly shows that true functional faith is always built on knowledge. Conversely, deficient faith is traced back to its unmistakable cause, which is deficient knowledge. Philip asked the Ethiopian eunuch, do you understand what you were reading? Because you see, it's important that you understand what you were reading. In the Old Testament, when Ezra read the scriptures to the people, he gave them the sense so that they would understand with their minds. Christianity is not a mindless pursuit. It's all about the mind. You've got to engage the mind. One more thing from Scarfati. He has a thing here on the accurate definition of words. Now, remember, he's talking about logic and propositions, okay? He's got a section on logic and biblical preaching and witnessing that's very good. I don't have time to read it. But after that, he says, it's impossible to have a logical discussion with people if there is no agreement on meanings of words or with those who are dishonest with their terminology. Socrates and Plato's Phaedo stated succinctly, to use words wrongly and indefinitely is not merely an error in itself. It also creates evil in the soul. Many cults, including liberal Christianity, often use biblical terminology but invest the words with entirely new meanings. It's just not liberal theology, it's our world. Planned parenthood. What a wonderful concept. Slaughter babies. Those babies feel the pain of that needle. Gets the body parts, sells them. Planned parenthood. Nah, that's mass murderhood. That's what that is. Remember, Satan was a liar from the beginning. Uh, these who invest words with entirely new meanings resemble Humpty Dumpty, who replied scornfully to Alice's ignorance of what he meant. He said, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. That's not right. Words have meaning. The reason I'm going into all this, we have been talking about uh, being anchored in the love of God, anchored in the goodness of God, anchored in the forgiveness of God. We can't know any of that if we're not anchored in the Scripture. But this section where he talks about changing the meaning of words brought something to mind. Uh, We talked a lot about Martin Luther two weeks ago. Luther had a contemporary 
what Luther did in Germany to bring about the Reformation. He was a Catholic priest. But Luther started studying the Greek New Testament. Um, the Bible wasn't available. If it was, it was only in Latin. And there had been one translation of that. Luther started delving in. He start, here's what Luther did. He started reading the Bible in the original language. It shook the whole world. While he was doing that, there was another Roman Catholic priest in England. His name was William Tyndale. He started doing the same thing. He, he was a linguistic genius, could speak seven different languages, and you couldn't tell what country he was from because he did it without any accent. And as Luther translated the scriptures from the original language into the German, which the everyday person could understand. So Tyndale did that for the English language. And that's why Reformation came to England. Familiar with a man in history named Thomas More? There was a movie about him made in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, had to do with seasons. A man for all seasons. They made him out to be stellar, wonderful. Uh, he was anti-God, anti-Scripture, anti-truth, anti-salvation by grace in Christ alone. And he was a killer of those who stood for the gospel. Yeah, he was a man for all seasons. And you didn't want to get near him. Thomas More hated William Tyndale. A um, little book called Introducing Tyndale. There's an introduction by John Piper, another gentleman named Robert Sheehan. It's good. A little section from Piper. Thomas More's criticism of Tyndale boils down mainly to the way that Tyndale translated five words. Five words. Now remember, you couldn't translate the scriptures into the everyday language. You couldn't do it. Why couldn't you do it? Uh, it's almost incomprehensible to us how viciously opposed the Roman Catholic Church was to the translation of the scriptures into English. John Wycliffe and his followers called Lollards had spread written manuscripts of English translations from the Latin in the late 1300s. In 1401, Parliament passed the law de heretico comurindo on the burning of heretics to make heresy punishable by burning people alive at the stake. They had the Bible translators in view. In 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Arundel, wrote these words, it is a dangerous thing, as witnesseth blessed St. Jerome, to translate the text of the scripture out of one tongue into another. For in the translation, the same sense is not always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man, 
hereafter by his own authority translate any text of the scripture into English or any other tongue and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. Piper says, together these statutes meant that you could be burned alive by the Catholic Church for simply reading the Bible in English. But you see, the Bible is the mind of Christ. Thomas More hated Tyndale because when he translated the scriptures out of the original Greek into, and then later the Hebrew, into the common English that people could understand, and he was a literary genius. We still, we still use his phrases today. By the way, the King James Bible because I don't know if I'll have time to get into this. The King James Bible, 90, r- roughly 90% of it was Tyndale's translation. Uh, his translation was unbelievable. So let me give you the five words. Moore's criticism of Tyndale boils, ma- boils mainly down to the way Tyndale translated five words. He translated pres- presbyteros, as elder instead of priest. See, they called them priest. He translated ecclesia as a congregation instead of church. I'll show you why that's important in a minute. He translated metanoeo as repent instead of do penance. It's a big difference between repent and do penance. He translated exomologeo as acknowledge or admit instead of confess. And he translated agape as love rather than charity. One of his uh, biographers, David Daniel, comments, he cannot possibly have been unaware that those words in particular undercut the entire sacramental structure of the thousand-year church throughout Europe, Asia, in North Africa. He cut them off at the knees because they had translated those five words incorrectly. It was the Greek New Testament that was doing the undercutting. And with the doctrinal undermining of these ecclesiastical pillars of priesthood and penance and confession, the pervasive power and control of the church collapsed. England would not be a Catholic nation. The Reformed faith would flourish there in due time. Five words. But those five words came from the mind of Christ. Penance. Pen, let's just take a penance. Penance is not in the scripture. Repentance is. To repent is to turn from your sin. In, in Thessalonians it says, you turn from your idols to serve the living God. You're going in a wrong direction, you, you turn and you go in the right direction. You're against Christ and now you're following Christ. It's a change of mind. It doesn't mean you do penance and you do this, and then that turned into, as we saw with Martin Luther, the indulgences where you can buy your way out of purgatory. There is no purgatory. But you see, this all comes down to authority. In the Roman Catholic Church, they say Scripture has authority, but you see tradition has equal authority, And when the Pope speaks from the chair, 
He has the same authority. This is what Martin Luther was taught. This is what Tyndale was taught. But then they started reading the Scriptures. Uh, you have to make confession. You have to go to confession. You have to confess every year to a priest. Well, it's, it's an elder. And you don't confess to elders. And you don't need to confess to a priest. Where's that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. Well, he's the mediator. First uh, Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I, I said this a couple weeks ago. When, when people who are not familiar with the Bible but have been in a certain religious system and been taught certain things, it's always interesting when Roman Catholic people actually begin to read the Bible. They're stunned. I didn't know that. I, no one told me that. In liberal Christianity, when people are told in liberal churches, in fact, rarely are they taught the Scriptures. It's a homily or some kind of positive thinking nonsense. But when they come to know Christ and they start reading the Bible, things change. Why is that? It's because there's power in the Word of God. It's the mind of Christ. Um, we, we ought to ask... We, we ought to ask this question. Um, and I, I was on 23. I, I want to go back to 20 because Piper's got something here that is really significant. He talked about it was incomprehensible how the Roman Catholic Church opposed the translation of scriptures into the common language. It was against the law. But you see, this is what Luther did in Germany. It's what Tyndale did in England. And then he had to run for his life. And he asked Henry VIII to approve it. Henry VIII wouldn't do it, so he had to run for his life. And now he's in Europe. He probably met Luther, probably spoke with him. He starts doing his translation work. But what happened was, as he was in Europe, he watched a rising tide of persecution and felt the pain of seeing young men who were believing the gospel and reading his works, being burned alive. Uh, his closest friend, John Frith, was arrested and tried by Thomas More and burned alive at the age of 28. Uh, they would smuggle, uh, remember the printing press was out now? So they would take these English translations, run them off. Uh, um, Tyndale was from a section in England where they did a lot of cloth. They had a lot of cloth, and so he would ship from Europe in stacks of cloth. They would put the scriptures in. Well, Thomas More figured out that the captain of the ship was in on this, and he burned him alive. There's a whole list of names here. Why so much hatred? for the Word of God, Piper asked. He gives a reason or two, but then he says, the deeper reasons why the church opposed the English Bible, one was doctrinal, one ecclesiastical, church, church pertaining. The church realized that they would not be able to sustain certain doctrines biblically because the people would see that they are not in the Bible. There you go. 
and the church realized that their power and control over the people and even over the state would be lost if certain doctrines were exposed as unbiblical, especially the priesthood and purgatory and penance. Maybe they should have gotten a special counsel because somebody was threatened. You see, there's politics and church stuff. Now, you say, Steve, we kind of went over this before a few weeks ago. Yeah, we did. Why am I going over it again? I'm going over it again because uh, for a couple reasons. I, I, am, um, I am humbled by the access that we have in our day to the Word of God. For a thousand years, it was closed. People couldn't access it. And those who were called by God to translate it and to distribute it and to make sure it got in different parts of Germany and Switzerland and France and all over Europe, those who did that, they did so at the risk of being burned alive. Tyndale, Tyndale was captured, betrayed by a friend in prison for 18 months, died a slow, horrible death of starvation. They put him to the stake, but they strangled him, and then they burned him at the stake. They all paid an incredible price. That, uh, just to get access, last week I told the story about Ravi Zacharias and his Vietnamese interpreter. When he would preach before the war, and then afterwards, that young man was put into prison and interrogated and beat up for his faith. There is no God. There is no God. And I told about how he was assigned latrine duty, and he was just about to lose his faith. And he's cleaning up the routine, la, la, latrines. He loved English. In the stench, in the sewer, he saw a page crumpled up, and he looked at it. It said Romans 8. And he pulled it out, and he cleaned it off and hid it on his person. And then he asked for latrine duty full time because he figured out that the commanding officer was using pages from the Bible. But he was so desperate for the Word of God that he would take those soiled pages and cleanse them as best he could so he could read the Word of God. This gives me perspective. Uh, I, I want to close this session and close this semester. Um, it's so critical that we as men, as leaders, as husbands, fathers, grandfathers, that we anchor ourselves in Christ. And you cannot anchor yourself in Christ unless you're anchored in his word. Do you recall... Uh, John 8, 31, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. 
This is why these men would go to such incredible, risky actions in order to get the Word of God out because, you see, they'd been set free. They knew the mind of Christ. Again, if, if you had the opportunity to sit down with the Lord Jesus Christ tonight and talk with him and, and look in his eyes and tell him what it is that's on your heart that is causing fear and trepidation and you're not sure about this situation and this, and once you explained it to him, you want to hear what he has to say. You want to know the thoughts that are in his mind, the wisdom that he would give to you. We've got it. It's accessible. It's never, because of technology, it's never been more accessible. Um, here's, here's four points as we walk out of application for all of us. And, and I, I would put it this way. To anchor myself in the mind of Christ, four things. Number one, I must revere the Word and I must read the Word. A lot of Christian men revere the Bible. They just don't ever read it. They're too busy. And we're all busy. And you say, Steve, you're making me feel guilty. Every time I go to see the doctor, they make me feel guilty. but they're trying to help me. Satan doesn't care if you revere the Bible. He just doesn't want you reading it. So what does he do? He gets us incredibly busy. And have you noticed whenever you go to get your Bible, does it happen to you like it happens to me? There's some kind of distraction. There's something to pull me away. There's something to interrupt. There's something. Why is it? Because he doesn't want me in the Scriptures. Because the scriptures are the mind of Christ. If he can get me out of the scriptures, I won't grow. I won't mature. But you see, in the scriptures, I will, if I have a teachable spirit, I will grow and I will mature. And he will do everything he can do to keep me from the word of God. To our young people, to our kids and grandkids who've been raised in Christian homes, he is barraging them and telling them, you cannot trust the word of God. You can't trust it. It's flawed. It, 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 it is a tsunami attack that the Scriptures cannot be trusted. He'll do anything he can do to keep us from the mind of Christ. So the first step is, I must revere the Word and read the Word. You have to put it into you. Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. These are not in sequence. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. There's power in the word of God. So I must revere the word. I must read the word. Here's number two. You say, yeah, Steve, I, but you know, I'm not sure how to get started on that. All right, here's, here's, here's the, so you revere it? Okay, here's the second thing. Set a time to read the Word of God. Set a time. Anything that's important, you set a time. 
When the doctor tells you if you don't make changes, you're going to die by 3.30 in the morning, you, you'll probably make a change in your breakfast. And you'll get a trainer, and a friend of mine texted me today. He sent me a text meant for his trainer, and I texted him back, and he said, oh, that's for my trainer. I've got to meet him tomorrow at 3 p.m. I told him I was doing eight laps, and then he asked me specifically in the pool, and he told me I was really only doing four. So I'm going to meet him at 3 tomorrow, and he's going to teach me eight laps. But, but you see, he's got to get serious because of what his doctor said and because of what his wife said. So what did he do? He said at time. Doesn't matter if you're, some, some of us are morning people, some of us are evening people. Doesn't matter. What's best for you? You set a time, and the Lord will be there. Secondly, set a place. Not, not secondly, thirdly, I'm getting these out of sync. Number three would be you set a place. What's good for you? What's a comfortable place for you to read your scriptures? I know some guys that do it at lunch hour, and they go get in their truck, and they sit there, and they turn the air on, and they have their time in the scriptures. That might be you get up early before anyone else is up in the house, or it might, but, but you set a place, and you go to the same place. You set a time, you set a place. What's the first thing? You revere, revere the word, you read the word, but you got to set a time, and then next you got to set a place. Number four, I, I would get some basic study tools. I would get a good study Bible, and there's a lot of them out there. If I had to pick one good study Bible, I would get the ESV study Bible, the English Standard Version study Bible. There's a lot of others that are out there that are excellent. That's the first one that comes to my mind. I use it every week. I have the app on my phone. I can be sitting in an airport waiting on a flight that's been delayed, and I'm doing my study with the ESV study Bible. If I got one ESV, it stands for English Standard Version. Uh, if I had one commentary, this is my opinion, I get Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible. It's been around like 300 plus years. It stood the test of time. I remember my dad, when I was a little boy, we'd be talking or I'd ask him a question and sometimes he'd say, well, let's see what old Matthew Henry has to say. And he'd get on his shelf his Matthew Henry commentary, which I still have that copy, plus two others. I got the Matthew Henry commentary on my phone. You see, why would I do this? Because I want to know the mind of Christ. When I think that for a thousand years people didn't have access to the Word of God, and then I think about what these men like Luther and Tyndale and others did to get the Word of God into a, a language that could be understood by the people, it rocked the world, it shook the world. And you know what it does? It shakes our lives. Where there's much anxiety, if you get in the Word, your anxiety is going to drop. Where there's much fear, if you get in the Word, you're going to replace it with courage. If, if there's great depression and you get in the Word over time, there's going to be hope because it's the Word of God. It's the power of God unto salvation. 
And really, guys, we don't have any excuses because we live in this technological age. It's amazing, is it not? You can be working out the gym and listen to the scriptures. You can be say, I'm not a reader. Well, I got a long commute. Read and listen to John 6 on the way to work. That ESV study app on my phone, I can hit speaker and the guy starts talking. He reads it to me. It's amazing. You got Bluetooth, you got yellow nose, you got, uh, I don't know what you got, but you, it's amazing, the technology. You can probably download it into your molar at the dental office and it'll come up on your retina. I don't know. But you know what? I will tell you this, the enemy doesn't want you in the book. If you get in the book, you'll grow. And one of his main strategies is to keep men out of the book. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. And one of his strategies is to keep men from the word of God because it goes on and says that the word of God is the sword of the spirit and it's the only offensive weapon we have to fight with. Let's pray. Father, this is why we're here at Bible study. This is why we're grateful for this church with a pulpit that teaches the Word of God and other churches that proclaim the Word of God without apology. Help us to be aware of Satan's strategies. The purpose of this is not to load men down with guilt. It's to prompt them to take right steps so that we can be anchored deeply in the mind of Christ and his word. What a difference it makes in our lives. When we're accused and guilty, we read that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and it gives us joy. Help us to implement this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.